AJ150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Radu Lekka, research fellow at the Kyoto Institute Library and Archives. Dr. Lekka's most recent publication is Turning Sites of Remembrance into Sites of Imagination, the case of Hideyoshi's Great Buddha. Published in the spring 2017 issue of Journal of Asian Humanities at Kyushu University. Dr. Lekka, thank you for being here. It's great to be here. So I understand much of your research has looked at the spatiality of the Tokugawa period and, and conceptions of space. So can I ask, well, first of all, what interests you about space and how did you get into this topic? Well, I was starting out in, uh, in Kanazawa University, that's where I did my, my BA, and I was looking at otogizoshi, you know, these medieval tales. And I, I chanced upon uh, this particular one called uh, Horai Monogatari, so you know, Tales of Penglai. And this is an imaginary island from Taoist legend. But what struck me is the, um, the different ways in which it was visualized. So you had basically the same, same story, different stories about immortals going to that island and finding the elixir of mortality. But when you get into the 17th century, you get different visualities of this, this island, and even get it on maps. So I started to think that there was a degree of reality to this space, and maybe the way we categorize imaginary spaces and real spaces needs to, to change when looking at the 17th century, for example, uh, in Japan. Actually, that's what got me started into uh, art history. I was, I was studying literature before that. And um, I, I started to think that there is a specific speciality that works uh, visually. Images can make you visualize a, a, a space in different ways than, than texts. And, and, and also objects, right? Because, because Mount Penglai, as you might know, is a New Year's decoration. So there are these tsukurimono, these uh, replicas of this, uh, this island uh, that are placed in the middle of the room and there are decorations on the side of it. So that's a bit like, um, I compared it to a, to a Wi-Fi network. Right? So you've got a router, right? that, that tsukurimono functions as sort of router that brings that space from from beyond the sea to the here and now, it materializes it. So that's what got me into art history and this, this idea of um, a malleable space that you can uh, integrate into your um, social occasions. That's why I also worked a lot with uh, the idea of ver the vernacular. So the idea that this is a, a negotiation, right? You, you adapt these concepts that are floating in the air for a specific occasion. And then I, I expanded this idea um, when I was uh, looked at the prostitution quarters, at Yoshiwara, for example, mm -hmm. where the whole idea is to create a, a special place, a special site where um, visitors are enchanted, right? and they're, they're transported to a special location. In your research, you've mainly looked at the early modern period. So what kind of conceptions of space do we see in Japan? Um, I was interested mainly in um, how, um, how people imagined the outside world in Japan. Right? There's this idea that the, Japan was cut off and that there was you know, everything beyond the Japanese archipelago had a, was imaginary, right? was, was only in uh, text and images. But what you see in places like Yoshiwara is the attempt to recreate a space uh, which is foreign and which has appeal. And it, this is often 
in, um, in the context of a sort of a Russian doll assembly. Right? So you have a, a specific structure of space which is almost labyrinthic. Right? And this is, this is where uh, the work of uh, Maki Fumihiko, for example, the, his idea of ma uh, is very useful. Because it's about how you, you kind of fabricate a space by going through it. So that's, that's what intrigued me. And this, this happened not only in Yoshimara, but in any social gathering, right? Where, where you had the literati, for example, they would try to fabricate a, uh, a, a sort of foreign space with reference to China. So that momentarily you, you could become, and this is related to identity, right? You could become someone else. You could become someone foreign for an evening. So I tried to understand the mechanism of how space entered into your social identity. With the Meiji Restoration, of course, and, and the transformations of the Meiji period, you know, we have a lot of a lot of things that we can point out and say how things shifted so much from the yeah, Tokugawa yeah. period to the Meiji period. Do we see a similar kind of transformation in, in the way people approached space and understood space? First of all, uh, um, what what is is uh, drawing me to the Meiji period, kind of my my entry point was the fact that I saw many uh, continuities. So um, I'm, I'm not the only one who who sees this uh, this year, for example, 1868, as kind of artificial divide. Perhaps also because I, I know more about the early modern period, I tend to see things just continuing as they are. For example, I, I was looking at some novels by Kanaga Kirobun, which is a, who's a successful Gesaku writer, and he just keeps on doing the, the, the same thing that Gesaku writers have been doing, like Santo Kyoden. But he's just taking new new materials. He's, he's parodying the Bunmei Kaika. So I think that was the initial reaction. So, um, and and this, this initial period of, of, of Meiji, right, the, the 1860s, the 1870s, is a period where you, where you get a great mix, a great hybridity. And people are still coming to grips with uh, there was there were no standards there was no established way of of doing things of of building a space of, of wearing clothes so that's that's something that attracts me more than the later Meiji period where, where things start start to get established and the um, the actual fabric the actual urban fabric for example if we think of Edo changes very gradually right? there's no sudden shift. I mean, um, there are no uh, major fires, for example, that would uh, destroy part of the city, like like the, the great Kanto earthquake. So modern buildings, right, uh, red brick buildings, just pop up uh, one by one. With, but they are encased within this early modern urban fabric. So you can see this, for example, I worked with maps of Yokohama, right? The Utagawa Sadahide um, made a name for himself among others, with uh, showing the new port of Yokohama. And you can see the evolution very gradually. There is even um, a map that I worked with in, uh, in Leiden, which is very unusual because it has a blacked-out area. And if you look at other um, maps, you, you, tell, you can tell that's, that's the area where the prostitution quarters are, are established. Mm-hmm. Right? This, was, this was really marshland. Right? This Yokohama it gets really built up during the early Meiji period, but you you see this negotiation going on. What what do you put on the map? What are the highlights? Right? What are the new Meisho 
that you uh, give importance to. For example, with Yokohama, the, the big draw are the, um, you know, the foreigners' buildings, even their graves. But then there is also this juxtaposition with the old uh, infrastructure. So if you look closely, the, the Tokaido Road was, was um, going, uh, was crossing nearby. And, and you see it highlighted in the early maps. And then that highlight disappears. And so, so I see kind of a sliding scale in, the, in these first years, which is, which is fascinating. You mentioned you've done a lot of work with maps. And I was kind of thinking, you know, there's, of course, you know, historians have used maps. And, but oftentimes the, the way that historians use maps is really just as an illustration of something. And say, yeah. you know, this is what Edo looked like or something like this. And we've talked about, you know, the history of cartography and maybe cartography relationship to empire, things like this. But when you're look, using maps as primary sources as a historian, what, what kind of things can we glean from the maps and how do we use the maps to do history? Well, I've had a chance to, uh, to work a lot with, ma with maps from the Leiden University uh, Library. And I had the luxury t of choosing uh, some of the most interesting examples for an exhibition. So I really had to think of uh, how, do, how do these maps appeal to a public which is largely Dutch. Right? And I mean, the first, the first thing to, to point out is that maps were, uh, until the 1810s, 1820s, there were no professional cartographers. So illustrators, in general, would, would, uh, would just produce maps as well. So you have Hokusai, you have the Utagawa school, just, just making um, uh, various maps according to commission. So it is a part of the visual culture of the period. It's not, it's not a specialized genre. It's something uh, that is subordinated to a specific purpose. So I think one, one thing you, you could say about maps in Japan in uh, particular is that it, they always highlight their practicality. And this is very apparent, for example, in road maps, right? Maps of the Tokaido and, you know, a Western cartographic historian would look at these and say, well, the, the, the directions are all wrong. Right? It's, it's, it, it's, the actual road is not straight, right? But it's straightened out in a kind of emaki mono format because of the practicality of, uh, of using on road. And still, the, the direction is pointed out. There are little compass roses which are oriented here and there. So it actually, it is, it is very accurate and it is very useful for its, uh, its purpose. So I try to take each of these maps as a sort of little cultural um, document, a sort of capsule of, um, of a specific use, of a specific purpose. And the most fascinating for me is the maps in which I can relate their use to a specific person. For example, there, there are not many, but there are some maps that um, have um, ownership seals on them or, or, or annotations. So for example, for the exhibition in Leiden, we were able to show, for example, maps of Edo. In some cases, the maps had been annotated by a, uh, a Japanese person, but many of them um, had, had been uh, customized for the Dutch. So the Dutch want to know how, you know how the place names are spelled out. And in some cases, for example, uh, Siebold, Franz von Siebold, who collected many of these, marked his exact route through uh, the city or through Tokaido. Mm -hmm. So it, it really is a, um, a historical document that you can link to specific social relationships. 
And that's what I also always try to imagine. How is this Pacific map used in the context of a social exchange? And a very useful model for me is that of a, a literati direction. So the idea of exchanging knowledge, exchanging a witty remark, exchanging gifts. So many times I come upon mentions of maps being given uh, as gifts, for example. And in, in, in this way, I, I try to pick up interesting examples that I can build a story on that give you a, uh, a specific study case. sounds like this reminder that maps are artifacts in their own right and yeah. are material goods and and I can really understand how you made this transition from art history then to looking at maps and the kind of spatial representations of them yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned that you see the 1868 date as something that's kind of very flimsy I think you said uh, and I was wanted you to elaborate on this so one question that I keep asking my guests is in light of this being the yeah. 150th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration, it was kind of the Meiji at 150 project, we're really emphasizing that date, 1868. But we should also be careful to ask ourselves, are we making too much of this date? Mm -hmm. Anniversaries are great because you can uh, think about uh, uh, these, uh, these dates again, and you know, it just brings attention to a certain uh, moment. But uh, for example, I see um, in, in the case of Dutch collections, you, you see, by looking at, for example, the gifts that were given by the, the early embassies, right, the 1862 embassies, for example, uh, you can start to see that the um, Japanese were already starting to kind of learn their ABCs uh, in international exchange, in international uh, participating in a, in a kind of world community. And, I, and I, I want to give an, an example of a specific map of, of China, for example. Um, this was something, again, that we showed in the, in the exhibition. It was a translation of um, a map of the Qing by a Christian missionary. And it showed all the ports that had been open to trade after the Opium War. And it shows, I mean, uh, that even before Commodore Perry arrived, in Japan, there was great interest in what was going on in, in China, for example, with the Opium War. And this is something that interested various... I think what makes it difficult to understand this transition period, 1850, 1860s, is that there was no unified initiative. Right? 1868 is, is great as a date because it, this is where you know, the government becomes centralized and it's, it's easier to, to understand the change. But... Various initiatives had been underway, had, um, had been initiated by the Choshu domain or other domains that, that had their own interests. They weren't thinking of, um, of acting in, in the name of Japan. They were uh, interested in acquiring technology in, for example, establishing trade relations. And this is, this, this is like a jigsaw puzzle and it's, it's, it's very hard to put together. So that's why perhaps it is less grasp, less, less graspable. And coming back to this, this map of the Qing, right, the 1862 embassy was gifting these maps and was you know, engaging, just in terms of, of maps, it was, by, by giving these, uh, these updated maps, 
they were showing that they are they too can participate in um, kind of gentlemanly exchange. Let's say like, like this new ideal of uh, reaching out towards towards another country. this exhibit of maps in in the Netherlands yeah where were any of these Meiji period maps out of curiosity no that's that's the tricky part about the Dutch collections because um, they are very happy to celebrate their privileged status uh, during the early modern period in Japan um, but then they they s lose grip of um, they lose the privilege of being the only nation to deal with Japan and so that is reflected in the collections. There are very few, comparatively uh, few post-1860s uh, maps. And this is something that is hard to present to a Dutch audience. Mm -hmm. right? You can say, and what, what I try to do is, is point out the role of the very first scholars of Japanese studies in Leiden University. There's um, Hoffman, who's the first professor of Japanese and Chinese. Uh, outside Japan. And he kind of continues this exchange, but in an academic context, and then it sort of peters out. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of tricky to, to uh, present to a Dutch audience. I'm curious how, how the, what the reaction was like uh, for the people at your exhibit. Did you get any comments? Well, first of all, we we're, were lucky that um, my wife, who's a designer, made a design for the exhibition and for the catalog as well. So it is something um, that Siebold House, which was the host of the exhibition, had not really done before. So I kind of invited an outside designer who came up with a new color scheme and, and a very inventive use of the maps. So she took photos and then traced some details and then collated them into a, a sort of graphic uh, assemblage. And we were able to print all of that on, uh, on a canvas. So it was really an immersive exhibit. It was one big room. And I think that's, that contributed to a lot of positive uh, reviews because really these, are, I, I, these maps otherwise can be very boring. They're just flat images. Um, and they're, they're about this, this culture that uh, you know, th their context is not immediately graspable. But by, by putting them into an um, immersive context, we were able to engage the audience more. And I think the, one of the key exhibits was this enlargement of, an, uh, of a, a map of Edo, an urban map, uh, on which Siebold had traced his, uh, his itinerary. So we were able to print that and put it on the floor. And we had kids, uh, for example, um, trying, you know, uh, hop scotching oh, wow. yeah. across the map. That, that was exactly what we wanted to put people in the footsteps of, uh, of past uh, explorers. And we had some Japanese people coming in and saying, oh, I used to live here <laughs> in Ginza. Or, right, right. 
So yeah, that was uh, that was something we wanted to do, kind of make it more more uh, interactive. Sure. I've always been curious what, I mean, especially when talking about Dejima and the Edo period and, and the kind of Dutch interactions with Japan throughout the Tokugawa period, and we'd say one of the biggest influences of that time was the Rangaku, the mm, Dutch yes, learning. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, sure, the term you know, came to, to mean all Western, anything that was Western, they just assumed yeah. was from the Dutch. In many cases, it, it was channeled through the Dutch. But yeah. when you're teaching that, say, when you're teaching about Japanese history in the Netherlands, is like focus on the Dutch learning and, <laughs> and Angaku, you know, this this big topic. Yeah, there is a there is of course a, um, a big focus on uh, on Rangaku, and this is also because of the collections, right? You've you've got these, for example, the, the huge collection amassed by by Zebold. So it's natural that you want to work with it and you want to highlight it. But what I what I try to do when I teach is is uh, say from the beginning that, in my opinion, Rangaku was a form of um, of a Bunjin um, intellectual interest. So, you know, intellectuals in the Edo period had a basic grounding in uh, in uh, Chinese classics and Confucianism, and to them. I think to, to many of them, Rangaku was a kind of update, a kind of extended footnote to their basic knowledge um, that came from the, the continent, from the Chinese continent. So it's it's important to put it into perspective and and to understand that this um, this interest in Rangaku was was often isolated, and um, it was often the, the you know it was, it was a kind of um, a geeky interest of, of particular people. So there were certain elements that were floating in the air. For example, Hokusai, you couldn't say he was uh, a Rangaku artist, but he he absorbed some elements. And right? so they were floating in the air, but so were pictures imported from um, from China. And you know, it was it was a kind of novelty. And it's important to keep that that perspective. And to understand there was no kind of constant diffusion. Sometimes I use the term scattered diffusion. Um, so there were bits and pieces that came in, and mostly through uh, personal contacts, through certain Dutch people and certain translators that managed to get specific books. So there was no, there was no plan. There was, it's very hard to sum things up. Like what was Rangaku? In many cases, just like in literary history, this is a term that was much inflated by later academic uh, scholarship. And again, we must look at each, each domain in uh, its own context.
Speaking of approaches to teaching, I was curious, uh, when you're teaching the Meiji Restoration in your classroom, what are some of the themes or narratives that you use to introduce the Meiji Restoration or the Meiji period to your students? Well, I've, I've taught the history of art. Um, so I've taught, a, since I'm, I'm an art historian, I had to do a, a survey for first-year students and go through um, through the whole the whole history of art in Japan. So when I got to the Meiji period, what I want to stress first of all is that art in uh, in the Meiji period was just another form of technology. That's how it started out, and it was first taught in technical schools. It was a form of uh, of skill, and only later, only um, after um, in the middle eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, do we start to get aesthetic debates and uh, traveling to Europe, to the U.S., and, and uh, starting to, to define the idea of, of um, Japanese art. So it's, this is one useful angle to understand as, a, as another of the, the Western technologies that were adopted by, from top-down, from, from the government. It was a, it was a very centralized uh, initiative at first. And then it is very important to understand the, the idea of exhibitions, right? um, the, um, how art was presented to the, to the general public. Internally, this started with industrial exhibitions, and that's where the uh, prizes would be given to painters, to sculptors, depending on their technical skill. So I give the example of, uh, of uh, Kuroda Seiki, for example, who um, exhibited this um, uh, nude, um, this very, very Western painting in uh, industrial exhibition in Kyoto. And this created a public scandal, let's say uh, newspapers discussed it, but he obtained um, a prize there. And he was, and then he was, I mean, he was part of the jury afterwards. So there is a, it's a good example to show the um, divide between public reception and this kind of um, top-down recognition of the arts as participating in the, the great effort to, to modernize. Right. It, it's interesting that you mentioned that there's art being displayed at an industrial exhibition, yeah. but this really does show how, in this case, this art is being seen as another type of technology, mm -hmm. which even brings us all the way back to what you were describing before about maps as being a type of art, but mm -hmm. also being a type of technology in the fact that they're conveying information and it requires technology to chart maps. Mm -hmm. Well, with, with maps, the, the great appeal was in copper plate. And so um, right from the beginning, for the 1850s, 1860s, you start to get copper plate printed uh, maps. And this was, of course, a novelty for, for Japan. And there, are even, there were even carvers who started to go miniature. So they started to um, show off their skill in making um, very tiny views, and very, um, which could be maps or, or landscapes. So there was this novelty of, of, of uh, this, this new look uh, of a new technology, which is uh, copper plate. And that influences um, how maps are distributed. Basically, the, in some cases, for example, with more world maps, the information had been available from the 1840s, 1850s. But by putting them in copper plate, 
and also by highlighting the fact that they're translations, right? Just just like books, it uh, it becomes appealing to to say that this um, uh, this is a translation from a, a Englishman, right? mm -hmm. from an English map. So they got caught up in this dynamics of the West as a, as an, um, a selling point. Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website. Meiji at 150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.